Let's seek the Lord's help as we return to his word this evening, recorded for us in Luke's Gospel, chapter 15. uh, Luke chapter 15, and we focus especially uh, thematically on verse 24. Luke chapter 15 and verse 24. uh, The words of the Father in the story, For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Luke chapter 15, verse 24. For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Well, this story has two endings which are virtually identical. Uh, In verse 24, we've just read. And then in verse 32, uh, right at the end, we have the father saying again, This, thy brother was dead and is alive again and was lost and is found. Well, we're not concerned so much this evening with the appendage, uh, the latter part of the story, though it is a solemn and cautionary tale uh, that the only individual outside of the blessedness of that day is the elder brother, a complete uh, somebody who's completely and utterly uh, closed his heart to what's going on. And of course, he doesn't share in any of the happiness or the bliss or the peace of that reunion. But anyway, we're not concerned with him tonight. Uh, We're turning especially to this thought and this theme. Uh, And really, I start off with one uh, particular statement, and it's this. As fallen children of Adam, we cannot be found until we are lost. We cannot be found until we are lost. Now, there's a bit of a riddle there. And I hope we'll unfold it as we go along. Uh, But we're looking especially at the end of the story. Now, sometimes, of course, we might think that's uh, cheating to to turn the pages right to the end of the story. If you're reading a whodunit, uh, then perhaps you might cheat and uh, and be filled with curiosity as to who the guilty party is. And so you turn to the end of the book, uh, but so you rob yourself of uh, the drama in between if you do that. Uh, But sometimes it is good to go to the end of uh, the story, especially the end of God's story, Uh, because time and again we're shown that the the end of the Lord, we need to look at the end of God's purpose in everything. Uh, You know how it is if you try and uh, sometimes understand what's going on in the middle, uh, you're going to land up in total confusion. Uh, and, uh, you know, you're not going to make head or tail of anything. I'm told, I've never looked at one, but I'm told that if you uh, go up to a tapestry, and if you go behind the tapestry and look at it from behind, it's a confused tangle uh, of threads uh, uh, which mean nothing. It's total confusion until you go round to the front of the tapestry and you see this beautiful... Uh, intricate work of art and immediately you see immediately you get the picture and what's going on and so often you know it's a bit like that if we try and look at the work of God uh, in midterm uh, we're, we're not going to understand what's going on we've got to look at the end of the Lord and there's so many illustrations of that in the word of God uh, one particular drama that comes readily to mind is the whole history of Joseph and the rescue of his family and the salvation of Israel. 
And if you look at that story at the beginning, it's a right mess. It's a right terrible mess of one hateful, dysfunctional family. And you wonder what possible good is going to come out of this until you go right to the end of the story and you see how wonderfully God was in control and how Joseph is the key player in the story uh, to bring salvation and security to that people. He says to his brothers, doesn't he, right, almost right at the end of the book of Genesis, what a comment that is upon the whole drama of Genesis from man's fall. You meant it for evil. Yes, you did. You meant evil by it. But God meant it for good. And so we can see God's word in that light in many places. Uh, we see the end of the Lord. Whoso is wise and will observe these things, even they will understand the loving kindness of the Lord. End of Psalm 107. Uh, Solomon in Ecclesiastes says, better is the end of a thing than the beginning of it. And so on and so forth. We could multiply illustrations. We can uh, see what James has to say uh, about the whole history of Job. Look what poor Job went through. But James says, look at the end of the Lord. See what God's end purpose was in it all. And then you'll understand the wisdom and the love of God. To see the end of the Lord, that the Lord is very pitiful and of tender mercy. Notice again the sacred chemistry in the words of the Lord Jesus in the upper room discourse when he says, your sorrow shall be turned into joy. And that's the wonderful thing about godly sorrow, not the sorrow of the world that works death, but godly sorrow will in the end become joy. That's a wonderful chemistry, isn't it? Uh, uh, something wonderful. Well, without more ado, let's uh, come to this matter by way of introduction and uh, just to have a few thoughts upon being lost for a moment before we enter upon our agenda. But then basically, I want us to look at it like this. I want us to come and see the place where the lad was, where we find him, the place, then the pain he experiences and that pain is good. I'm not talking about the pain of privation and, and hunger in his physical body, uh, but the mental pain that he must go through in the process of these things. The pain, and pain, remember, can be a good thing. Pain is an evidence of life, not of death. And remember that. I know it's easy to say that if you're not in pain. I know that. Uh, but nevertheless, it's an evidence of life and not of death. Thirdly, the power of love. And I want us to get the feel of it here tonight, though it's such a well-known story, that over the whole drama is the love of, can I put it reverently, because is it, is it like that in the story? The love of this dear old man is in control of everything, even if it's remotely, he's in control. The power of love. And then fourthly, the purpose in it all, and to see the wonderful end purpose uh, of God in it all. Uh, that the, the end state is far better than it was at the beginning. You know, we sometimes sing those words of the old hymn, in him the tribes of Adam boast more blessings than their father lost. That's a tremendous thought, isn't it? But it's so true in the word of God. So basically that's our agenda when we get to it in a few moments time, the place where the lad was, uh, the pain and the necessary pain that he experiences, 
Then, thirdly, the power of love. And finally, uh, the purpose in all this experience. You know, it's such a well-known story, isn't it? <laughs> you could spend a number of meditations on it. It's so full, it's so rich. It's such an economy of words, isn't it? And yet there's so much in it. We've all got a picture of this story in our minds, haven't we? If we're acquainted with it at all. Uh, and we can see the old man, and we can see the young men, and we can see the people in the party, uh, and we can see even the workmen uh, going about the farm. We've all got a picture of this story in our minds. Uh, and the Lord has a purpose in that. Uh, and uh, from it we learn so much about the Lord and about ourselves. But first of all, just a few lingering thoughts uh, about being lost. Have you ever felt lost? Uh, you know, in a very profound way, lost. I suppose my first experience of feeling lost was when I lost my mother in the marketplace when I was about four or five. Uh, and this terrible blind panic uh, that you experience at such an age when you thought you've lost your parent. It was only for a few moments, and she was only the other side of the market stall, but it might have been an eternity. Uh, you know, it's a terrible thing, isn't it, to feel lost? But it's not necessarily a bad thing. That's the point I'm coming to. Uh, if we had serious impressions uh, when we were young or little about divine things, we'll know how terrible that fear is of being lost. What if my name should be left out when thou for them shalt call? I remember standing in a gallery and watching a baptism when I was seven or eight and being terribly afraid of being outside of God's people. Terrible fear. That wasn't bad. That wasn't bad. That was good. Uh, and so you see, it's a very important point, isn't it, that this thought of, of, of being lost. You know, I remember there was a time in my very early teens, once we were speaking about Banner of Truth paperbacks, um, Puritan paperbacks in the vestry. And uh, I remember uh, when in the early 1960s, shows our age now, when they were coming out for the first time. And they had these uh, very up-to-date, lurid uh, 1960s covers on. Uh, and uh, it was the in thing, you know, to be with it. And uh, it was in style. But I remember this particular volume caught my attention. Uh, Joseph Aline's Alarm to the Unconverted. And there's there a dismal picture on the front of a man sauntering through a park and getting nowhere. Lost. Uh, the, the summer is over. The harvest is ended. And we are not saved. The terrible fear of being lost. But let me bring it home to you like this just for a few moments. You see... Well, I've got a friend in the north of England and uh, there are times when she gets into a state of mind where she doubts her salvation. She's been a believer many years. But she has these, you know, th these times of, of lowness. And she writes to me and I have to write back and it's, well, it's a labour of love. Uh, but usually, you know, we sort the problem out and she's okay again. But she, at times she has this terrible fear that she is in Hebrews 6. And you know that Hebrews 6 is about apostates. 
about those who turn from following the Lord and go the awful way from God. And I'm able to say to her, you are not in Hebrews 6. Because if you were in Hebrews 6, you wouldn't care. You wouldn't be bothered. You wouldn't be interested. You'd have given up on God. We all know people who have, who really have. I said, you wouldn't be afraid, you wouldn't be troubled if you were in Hebrews 6. Uh, and so uh, this is very relevant to our thoughts tonight because this young lad is going to come to a point where he feels lost. And he knows he's lost. And that's not a bad thing. If we feel that we're lost, if we experience what it is to be lost, that's not a bad thing because it's, because it's the beginning of being found and found in a blessed way by the Lord. You know, there's one particular character in the New Testament that is always, you know, a, a very sad example of apostasy. Always not a melodramatic one like, like Judas. You know, Judas is an awful, lurid picture, isn't he? Well, not everybody goes to hell that way. You turn to that lovely last letter of Paul to Timothy, uh, and it's full of sweet intimacy uh, and disclosures between father and son. It's a beautiful letter. But there's one expression towards the end of that letter uh, which is withering and sobering. Demas hath forsaken me. Timothy's abandoned me. Demas, our brother, the one who's been with us all these years. Solemn, isn't it? He's, he's, he's been with us in everything. He's partaken in all the, uh, the, the apostolic ministries. Demas hath forsaken me. Why has he done that? Why has he done that? Is there some lurid or dramatic crime like Judas? Well, we don't know, but really not necessarily. We're not told. The simple fact is, is that he loves this world. And he's crucified Christ afresh and put him to an open shame. And he's gone without trace. He's out of the picture. All oh, friends, there's a difference between backsliding and apostasy. There is a difference. But I remember Stuart Olliott saying once, don't be too careful if you think you know where the boundary is. Yes, there's a difference. But be very careful. There comes a point, Olliott said, when you're, when you're cycling a, a, a bicycle uphill and you stop trying, you stop pedalling, there comes a point when you'll start going backwards. And you won't go backwards at the same rate, you'll go backwards faster and faster and faster. And that's a very good illustra illustration. But we're not here to look at that tonight, especially, but just to focus upon what real apostasy is. Uh, the thing is this, if you're afraid, if you're tremblingly afraid, uh, but looking to the Lord, uh, uh, your heart may be full of fears, but that doesn't mean you're apostate. Because if you're troubled about it, then there's the evidence that you're not an apostate. But let's come to the matter directly, shall we? 
we come to the place where the lad is and uh, uh, the pain that he is obviously experiencing mentally the power of love and the purpose of the whole thing. First of all, the place where he is. And look, 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 look at what's happened to him. You see, he's been, he's been on a mad errand, hasn't he? To, to enjoy himself, you know, to fulfill himself, to do his own thing, to go out into the world and, and have a good time and, and see everything and do everything. I think the bit about harlots that the elder brother comes out with is a bit of sour grapes and probably exaggeration. I don't know whether the Lord intended that. Uh, but it, it doesn't say to start with that he, it, that he was committing all sorts of immorality. It, it, it's, it's an open question. But we, we know that, uh, yeah, he was in rebellion. Uh, and he, he was on a mad career. But the point is this. We find him when he's been brought to a standstill. He can't go any further. He's stuck. He's absolutely stuck. What a mercy that is, isn't it? You know, it? John Kent has captured that in that old hymn that we've just sung together. It comes to a point where he can't get any further. What a mercy that is. That that's where he's come to. What a mess is it? It couldn't be worse, could it? It couldn't be a more shameful mess because here, what do we have? You know, if we understand the culture aright in the context in which Jesus is speaking, here we have a Jewish lad stuck in a pigsty. And he's so desperate for food, he, 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 he's prepared to gnaw the, the, these unclean things that the creatures are eating. That's how low he's sunk. That's where he's come to. But the amazing thing is this. Often the lowest point can be sanctified by God to bring us back to himself. And again and again this happens uh, in the experience of God's people. That low point is not necessarily uh, though it, it seems to be the worst point, it's not necessarily the worst. It's, the it's where things begin to change, begin to change. You know, if we have, this is rather a crude, foolish oversimplification, but supposing I could throw a great graph behind me, uh, depicting the spiritual state of Israel in Old Testament times, uh, from Abraham uh, right to the end of the Old Testament. I suppose we could crudely depict on a graph a, a line either going down or going up, uh, assessing the spiritual state of the nation. Well, I think those of you who are roughly acquainted with Old Testament history, you'll say, well, there comes a point when it starts going down and down and down. And it gets worse and worse and worse, like our Western world and our nation today. Things just basically are getting worse and worse. And it gathers momentum, morally. And there comes a point where there's no remedy and the judgment of God uh, uh, comes in. And, uh, well, we can't explore that tonight. It's very solemn, though. But it happened with Israel of old. I wonder where you'd say was the lowest point. 
Because God still had a mercy towards his people. And God still had a purpose of salvation for them. However low they came, however far they wandered from him, he had a, a, per, a saving purpose for them, didn't he? I wonder where you'd say the lowest point was. Uh, if we sort of open Bible study tonight, I wonder what the answers would be. There probably would be several answers. And they'd all have a point. But I think, for me, the lowest point is this. The lowest point is a psalm. And it's such a terrible psalm, I say that reverently, it's such a bitter psalm, that it's practically unsingable. Or bits of it are unsingable. Though all psalms are songs, they're not all meant to be sung. It's the word of God, yes. Uh, but it's so bitter as to be unpalatable. Psalm 137. By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down. Sitting down doesn't mean making yourself comfortable, but means giving up. That's it, we've finished. There we sat down. Yea, we wept when we remembered Zion. But the amazing thing is this. If you're looking at that graph again, it's not going down anymore. It's not going down anymore. It's imperceptible, but it's starting to go up because they've remembered Zion. And it's a terrible memory because they, now they can't get back there. They're lost. But in the purpose of God, it's the beginning of a turn. And we haven't got time to go into the rest of the story tonight, but you know how it goes on. Uh, you know, the end of the Old Testament in the, in the Hebrew order of books is the end of two chronicles. And the very last words of two chronicles are these. Let him go up, not down. And here's the Persian king making a way for God's people to return. It's all in the book of Ezra. We can't go there tonight. But you see the point, don't you? This low point is not necessarily the worst place. The pigsty wasn't the worst place. Because it was the place where, as we shall see, this lad not only grinds to a halt, not only gets to the end of himself, but he comes to himself which is a very telling expression of the Lord Jesus here. It's the beginning. Oh, he's got a long way to go yet. <coughs> but it's the beginning of a saving change. You know how some people, uh, some poor insomniacs, they're watching for the break of day. And it's only a glimmer on the horizon to start with. But nevertheless, it's something that cheers us to see a change. And it's a wonderful thing, isn't it? But anyway, uh, we must leave that now. Uh, Death Valley becomes a place of life. That's the amazing thing. Uh, as we read in Hosea, the Valley of Achor, which is a horrible place. Nobody wants to go there. But the Valley of Achor becomes a door of hope. That's the first wonderful step in God's purpose. Now, we must hasten on. Secondly, let's look at the pain. And I mean by this, not physical, but emotional. And it's obvious, isn't it? The point is this, you come to this point, he experiences what it is to be lost. 
But before we get any further, before he has any resolution to do anything about it, he experiences what it is to be lost. And you know, that that's an experience that we have to go through. And it's not just those who are first coming to Christ need to go through. But it's often the place which God's people are brought to. They're brought to the end of themselves. They're brought to the end of their tether. But it's in that experience that God will bless them afresh. That's the amazing thing. And there's so many examples of it in the word of life. But time prevents us from looking at many examples. Well, I'll show you one. So it applies to you know, believers in the way, not just to sinners coming to Christ. Acts chapter 27, the great shipwreck. Uh, and what an experience that was, wasn't it? Uh, this ship breaking up in the high seas. I think the 21st century equivalent of that is uh, the spacecraft that's lost all power halfway between the Earth and Mars. Houston, we've got a problem. Yes, we have got a problem. We're lost. We're lost in deep space. And that's where we are. Acts 27 again. You know, the people on board that ship, there are a lot of bad people on board that ship. You know, bad, bad, even in worldly terms. There were ordinary people. There were some noble people like the centurion. And there were just a few Christians on board ship. We know that re there were at least three. There was Paul. And there was Luke, obviously, who was writing the account later on. And there was another believer called Aristarchus who was with them. There were at least three believers on board. But they came to this point, didn't they? Not the fact that they thought they were going to be eternally lost because they knew they were safe in Christ eternally. But you had this haunting verse that runs like this. And when neither sun, neither sun nor stars, in many days appeared, and a great tempest lay upon us, all hope, all hope that we should be saved was then taken away. They had to come to that point. And how many times believers have to come to that point in God's purpose? Now we know, we know the story, don't we? How the Lord appeared to Paul that night. Yeah, Paul, you, 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 you're safe. You're absolutely safe because you've, you've witnessed of me in Jerusalem. You've got a witness of me in Rome as well. You're, you're immortal until your work's done. And not only that, he said, I'll throw in the lives of everybody else as well. So it's an absolute miracle. Nobody's going to die. It's just absolutely incredible. But the point is this, and it's a very important point. These experiences of being lost are sent to awaken exercises and longings in us which otherwise would never be there. Now, I'll repeat that because it's so important. These experiences of loss are sent to awaken exercises and longings in us which otherwise would never be there. And coming back to the lad now, and this is very important, coming back to the lad, what happens immediately next? <coughs> Verse 17, And when he came to himself, 
And, and, and I understand that the, the, the Greek here is very dynamic. Yeah, and, and, and it's like coming into yourself with a bang. You know, you, you, imagine you've got a bit of elastic and you stretch it, and yet you let the one bit go, and you go, it, it, it comes straight back with a with a, a thud and a retort. Suddenly, he's awake, and, and he's looking at things in a right way. After all these months of being so mad and stupid, he's looking at things in the right way. The awful, sober reality of the pigsty, but at least it's reality. At least it's not some stupid, crazy, mad dream that he's chasing. It's real. He's come to himself. But the point is this, verse 17. And when he came to himself, he said, How many hired servants of my father's have bread enough and to spare, and I perish with hunger. Now what am I looking at there? I'm looking at several things. What happened to that young man at that moment was something so wonderful. Because so far, he has ignored his old dad. He's ignored his old dad's wishes and feelings and everything. And everything he's done has been done really to disregard and shame his father. Now, take another look at him now. And something rather beautiful is happening in the heart of this young man. And it's this. What a lovely old fella my dad is. What a lovely old man he is. That's the thought that's coming into his head. And it's tremendous. Talk about healing. Talk about health. And it's the beginning the very beginning of his being put right. He thinks about his dad for the first time perhaps in ages. And it's the beginning of his rescue. He's still in the big sty, but he's not going to be there for long now. And, you know, he's thinking about the village back home. And he's thinking about the, the ne'er-do-wells in the village, the layabouts, the men who haven't got a proper job, the men who are slouching about in the marketplace with nothing to do and are a bit of a nuisance. And there's my old dad. He loves everybody, my old dad. He values everybody, my old dad does. And he goes down to that marketplace and he says, come on, fella, come up to the farm. You look as if you need a square meal and a day's work. You come up to the farm. You go into the kitchen. The wife will give you something to eat and then come up onto the field and I'll give you some decent work all day. Well, I hope I'm not using too much license, but I think that's the picture. It's not the regular staff at the farm. Is any Tom, Dick or Harry, his dad will have to work on the farm. And then the lad says to himself, what am I doing here? I'm not fit to be a son anymore. I'm not, I can forget that. I'm, I'm not a son anymore. But at least I can go back on those terms. 
Not because I've got any merit or value, but I know that my old dad will accept people on those terms. And that's what's so beautiful. That's what's so wonderful to see what's happening. Yes, he's still in the pigsty. But wait a minute, yes, he's still in the pigsty. But something beautiful is going on in his sinful heart. Friends, it's what we call repentance. It's a beautiful thing, is repentance. Remember the old minister, he's been dead nearly 50 years now. Uh, Mr. Stanley Dells, but I remember him saying once, you know, he said, people think it's a miserable thing, a gloomy thing when people talk about repentance. It's not, nothing of the sort. He says, it's a, it's, a it's a wonderful thing, it's a blessed thing when men repent. It's a beautiful thing when men repent. And that's what we see here, isn't it? Isn't it lovely? Isn't it fascinating in a, in a holy sense to see the change, the, the chemistry, the change going on in his heart? Repentance unto life. And then, of course, the next thing that happens is this. He gets up and goes. And that's very important that we don't forget that. He does arise and he, he does go. He does something about it. The solemn thing is that sometimes, especially in times of revival, there are awakenings, but those awakenings die away in some people because it doesn't, it, it, it doesn't give birth in true repentance. But here we see the young man who comes back to his father. Thirdly, we must hasten on. The power of love. The power of love. Let me remind you again, if you need reminding, I'm sure you don't, but, uh, but the almost unseen but powerful presence in this story all the way through and I say it not irreverently, you know, I'm, I'm simply using the homely, the homely imagery that the Lord Jesus is using. It's the, it's the dear old man in the story. It's his love that, 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 that's keeping everything going uh, and that's preventing disaster. It, it's his big, it's his massive heart that encompasses the whole situation. And especially his dear lad. And that's why he is so delighted when he's able to say, this my son was dead. I'd lost him. He's dead. But now he's alive again. It's all so very much alive. He was lost and is found. You know, it's thought by some... Uh, that, uh, and I think quite rightly so as well. Uh, you know, I don't want to be misunderstood here. You know, I'm not talking about a love of God which is, which is not correct with Scripture. Uh, but, and, you know, I wouldn't give it, uh, 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 any, any room for that in one mo for one moment at all. Uh, but, uh, but the point is this, is that the Lord Jesus who knew the father like him? You, you, you know how, how uh, almost like a, a pained expression on his face when, uh, when Philip comes to him and says, Lord, show us the father and it sufficeth us. And Jesus says, have I been so long time with you, Philip? And yet hast thou not known me? He who has seen me has seen the father. How sayest thou then? Show us the Father. 
many feel that here is a beautiful picture of God the Father. Now, I don't want to be misunderstood theologically there, you know, and so we've got a broad sort of a uh, God loves everybody sort of thing. I don't mean that at all, but it is a picture of the Father because nobody is in a better position to show us the Father than the Lord Jesus. And here's, here's a beautiful, a beautiful cameo of him. And we say it reverently, but the old man in the story is a valid picture of God the Father. And uh, may we accept the sweetness of that without being presumptuous and irreverent. Here is a picture of the Father to us. And the power of love. Uh, we've sung it in John Kent's hymn, haven't we? That, that sovereign electing love uh, that, 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 that can never be thwarted, that was always in control. Even in the very darkest hour, it was in control and was outworking its purpose. And so it's a beautiful thought, isn't it? Think on these things, says Paul to the Philippians, the power of love. We must hasten on. Time is going. One more head, and it's this. The purpose in this experience of loss. Remember... We cannot be found until we are lost. We cannot be found until we are lost. You know, there's another book which I must refer you to just for a few moments in the New Testament, the very last of the pastoral epistles, the epistle to Philemon. And there's a wonderful picture there of somebody, of somebody who is lost but who is actually found again. And with this particular thought that their being found is far greater than the original loss involved. I think one of the great key verses of Philemon is this. Beautiful verse 15 of Philemon. For perhaps he therefore departed for a season thou shouldest receive him forever. Now, one or two thoughts here before we leave the matter. Onesimus was a runaway slave. Well, their number was legion in the first century AD. I mean, Onesimus hadn't been a very good servant at all. By Inferenced by what Paul says, he'd been a, probably a bit of a tea leaf. Uh, you know, in a big house, because it, here's this great house, this great villa, uh, which Philemon owns. He's a big uh, a, a landowner, he's a well-to-do man, he's a very wealthy member of the church at Colossae, he's a good man, we, we, know, we know he's a gracious man from what Paul says. Uh, and uh, we believe he was good, good with his staff. But he had one impossible member of staff, uh, this slave uh, Onesimus, who wasn't beyond putting his fingers in the drawer and helping himself uh, covertly to the silver, you know, a little bit of silver, nobody's watching. And in the end he sees the main chance, which many did in those days, of doing a runner, which he did. And very effectively. 
And well, what did runaway slaves do? What was the, the obvious thing to do? Well, you know, you want to be anonymous, don't you? You don't want to be recaptured. So you go to the big city. And you can be completely lost in the crowd then. No, nobody's going to rediscover you. There's loads of runaway slaves everywhere. As long as they play their cards right, you know, they're, they're, they're you know, onto, perhaps onto a good thing. But look at the wonderful providence of God. Somehow or other, that hapless young man finds his way to Paul's house. And that wretched runaway lad is soundly converted. And there's such a change in him that Paul says he's a brother, he's a real help to me in my work. In fact, he's such a help to me now in my work. He says, I'm reluctant to part with him. He says, I've got no right to hang on to him because he's your, he's your slave. He's not mine. Therefore, I'm, gonna, I'm sending him back. But, but, but he says, how am I sending him back? What did you lose? Philemon, what did you lose? You lost a worthless, no good boy It was a pain. And you might be saying, well rid of him. But now, Philemon, I'm sending back to you a brother in the Lord. A man whose life has been changed and who I'm sure will be of the greatest service and benefit to you. Read that letter when you get home. It, it, the, the arguments in that letter are fantastic. I mean, well, we know from, obviously from what happened that Philemon had to say yes. But Paul is so persuasive all the way through that letter, that you can't say no to that. And that's the beautiful picture that's unfolding here. You see the end of the story. And, and, and Paul, as I've said, has a sort of inkling as to it all here. You know, for perhaps he therefore departed for a season, that, that God had a purpose in it all. Our all-wise God had a wonderful plan in it all. But thou shouldest receive him forever. Uh, you know, it's amazing that the, the overrulings that the Lord has. Um, I must hasten to a conclusion, but you know, many years ago at Northampton, we had a young man come along. Um, well, he was in a terrible state when he arrived amongst us. He was uh, penniless. He was almost homeless. He was in a dreadful state of hell. And to cut a long story short, he, he eventually joined the church and became a member. And we learnt that he got a history, uh, that he'd had a girlfriend, seriously involved with this girlfriend. They hadn't got married, but they, it was, it had a serious relationship. And uh, long before he came to us, she'd met this other man and gone off with him and had a child by him. And the, the other man had cleared off long since gone and here she was a, a, an unmarried mother but the lad at, at Northampton he, he met her again and in the providence of God they were reconciled and uh, I had the privilege of marrying them and uh, as far as I know they're still very happily married with more children in the, in the family but uh, this was the text I took at their wedding. For perhaps he therefore departed for a season 
that thou shouldest receive him forever. It worked out so wonderfully well in the end uh, for all concerned, everybody involved. And, you know, that's why we started off with Joseph. Because, you know, when you look at and see again how that story started with the awful loss that was experienced uh, when Joseph was sold into Egypt. And you think how wicked some of those brothers had been. Not all of them, you know, because, you know, humanity is a mixture, isn't it? Uh, and some were just weak individuals like Reuben. But some of them were really nasty pieces of work. They really were. Simeon and Levi, instruments of cruelty are in their habitation. Oh, my soul, be not thou, you're not... There's it, it, their own father. Don't want anything to do with them. They're me own flesh and blood. That's how bad they were. And yet, well, you don't read the story for yourself. Uh, you don't need me to try and wax eloquent over it. It's a tremendous story. And you see those men who had once been so murderous and so callous as to soak the lad's coat in animal blood and stick it under their father's nose. That's the sort of men they were. But you watch those men changed. And you see this poor, bedraggled, hag-ridden, guilt-ridden mob that turn up in Joseph's court. And how does Joseph react? They say, right, I'm going to crush these murderous men now. No. Joseph turns aside to weep, doesn't he? Because his mood was at compassion. The sheer pathos and wretchedness of these men move him. And the rest of the story works out, doesn't it? You know, sometimes, I don't know whether you still read with Littland's fairy tales. You know how the classic fairy tale ends uh, with, you know, they all lived happily ever after. Well, I think in a sense we can say that at the end of Genesis because he's a family that's reconciled beyond all, beyond all expectation, reconciled in love. The word of Joseph again. Ye meant it unto evil, but God meant it unto good. Even at the end of Genesis, here's these men, and they're still guilt-ridden. They still think, oh, now, now the father's dead. Now Joseph will, will exact his revenge now. Uh, you know, for the sake of dad, he didn't do anything while he was still a living. But now he'll get us now. But no. But no. You meant it for evil. But God meant it unto good. And here you see the wonderful plan and the wonderful working of the Lord. This, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. May we bless the, the Lord for his wonderful works, his wonderful works of grace and the welcome that there is in the arms of God for all who repent. Uh, and all who seek refuge in Jesus Christ. So may God bless these few thoughts to us. Amen.